Okay, Acts 5, 17 to 42. The high priest and his officials, who were Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But an angel of the Lord came at night, opened the gates of the jail and brought them out. Then he told them, go to the temple and give the people this message of life. So at daybreak, the apostles entered the temple, as they were told, and immediately began teaching. When the high priest and his officials arrived, they convened the high council, the full assembly of the elders of Israel. Then they sent for the apostles to be brought from the jail for trial. But when the temple guards went to the jail, the men were gone. So they returned to the council and reported the jail was securely locked with the guards standing outside. But when we opened the gates, no one was there. Then when the captain of the temple guard and the leading priest heard this, they were all perplexed, wondering where it all would end. Then someone arrived with startling news. The men you put in jail are standing in the temple teaching your people. Teaching the people, sorry. The captain went with his temple guards and arrested the apostles, but without violence, for they were afraid the people would stone them. Then they brought the apostles before the high council, where the high priest confronted them. Didn't we tell you never again to teach in this man's name, he demanded. Instead, you have filled all Jerusalem with your teaching about him, and you want to make us responsible for his death. But Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than any human authority. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead after you killed him by hanging him on a cross. Then God put him in the place of honour at his right hand as prince and saviour. He did this so the people of Israel would repent of their sins and be forgiven. We are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit who is given by God to those who obey him. When they heard this, the high council was furious and decided to kill them. But one member, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, who was an expert in religious law and respected by all the people, stood up and ordered that the men be sent outside the council chamber for a while. Then he said to his colleagues, men of Israel, take care what you are planning to do to these men. Some time ago, there was that fellow Thutis who pretended to be someone great. About 400 others joined him, but he was killed and all his followers went their various ways. The whole movement came to nothing. After him, at the time of the census, there was Judas of Galilee. He got people to follow him, but he was killed too and all his followers were scattered. My, so my advice is, leave these men alone. Let them go. If they're planning and doing these things merely on their own, it will soon be overthrown. But if it is from God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may even find yourselves fighting against God. The others accepted his advice. They called in the apostles, had them flogged. Then they ordered them never again to speak in the name of Jesus and they let them go. The apostles left the high council rejoicing that God had counted them worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. 
and every day in the temple and from house to house they continued to teach and preach this message. Jesus is the Messiah. Thank you, Robin. I want you to tell me if you notice a pattern here. We've been preaching through Acts, okay? Chapter 3 of Acts, wow. Chapter 4, whoa. Chapter 4, verse 30 to 37, wow. Chapter 5, whoa. Chapter 5, verse 12 to 16, wow. Chapter 5, verse 17 to 40, whoa. Chapter 5, 41 to 42, wow. Chapter 6, whoa. Do you notice a pattern there? <laughs> wow. Next minute, whoa. Does that describe your life? You know, one, one day everything is wow. And then the next day it kind of smacks you in the face. You're like, whoa. Wow. Whoa. Do you ever feel like you're living in a tumble dryer? You're up, you're down. Some days you don't know what's up and down and you're a bit confused and disorientated. The question I have for us is, is how do we live when crisis comes, when those days of woe, when those things that happen that cause us pain or suffering, how, how do we live when they come? How do we live when crisis comes, not just once, not just twice, but again and again and again? The crisis here or there is, is one thing, isn't it? And last time I preached, I, I preached all about how to manage a crisis, having a crisis management plan, a faith management plan in times of crisis. And I wonder if you remember the key points from, from that week. Do you remember when a crisis comes, the important thing to do is to pray together. The important thing to know is God's sovereignty. The important thing to ask for is boldness. And the important thing to believe for is a sign. Maybe we can put the summary of that up there. No, we don't have the summary. That's okay. What do, you, what do you do, though, when you feel like life is just one big crisis? You get a few breathers here or there, but stuff keeps coming at you. And it's the same stuff. And one day you wow, but the next day something happens and you woe again. As believers, how should we live when crisis comes again? And again. We're actually going to look at this passage from Acts chapter 5 and we're going to try and answer that question today. And I think the answer that we have is something quite special and very remarkable. I read at the start of our service today from chapter 5, verses 12 to 16. And if you'll recall, that's kind of like the extreme sports version of signs and wonders. 
the healing of the blind man that we read about uh, a few weeks ago in chapter 3, that's pre- that was pretty special, wasn't it? Do you remember at the temple, Peter and John, they healed the man who, would, who was blind. But the stuff that, that seems to be happening here in chapter 5, it's mind-blowing. March all these, these healing miracles, they're happening at the temple. And that's a pretty bold move on behalf of the apostles because they've already been warned not to teach or preach Jesus or do miracles in his name. But here we see there's just this abundance of regular, frequent miracles. It's kind of like a multitude of miracles. People are getting healed. Here, 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 everywhere. Even Peter's shadow, you know, as he walks across, even his mere shadow is healing people. Does that just blow your mind? Can you imagine that? Walking along the street and you get healed because someone's shadow touches you? That's some Holy Spirit power right there, isn't it? Those who are tormented by evil spirits are getting freed. Do we need that today? Everyone brought to them gets healed. 100%. Not 80%. Not 70%. You know, I was reading a a book a couple of days ago. I can't even think what it was because I've read so many things in the last few days. But but the guy reckoned that that when he prayed for people, about 25 to 30% get healed. Now, I must confess, that's probably better than my strike rate. But it's, it's nowhere near 100, is it? All right? And then there's salvations happening. People are putting their trust in Jesus and joining the church. Don't we need that today in our world? Wouldn't that be, wow. Imagine being part of that. The religious leaders, they get jealous, don't they? They're worried about losing their power and their influence. And so they arrest the apostles and they put them in jail and here's where things turn Whoa. But an angel from the Lord comes and is sent to help them escape and they go back to preaching and things are, wow, again. Then they're hauled in again, whoa. And um, just like earlier in chapter 4, they're questioned by the leaders. And, And what do they say? They're questioned. What do they say? They basically just tell them about Jesus. If you ever questioned, just tell someone about Jesus. That's a good answer, isn't it? They tell them about Jesus and, uh, and then they say, you know what, folks, what else can we do but obey God? Of course, implicit in what they're saying is we're obeying God, but you guys, you're not. You can imagine this kind of infuriates the religious leaders and they're ready to sign the death warrant but one of the respective Pharisees speaks up. And so they decide to downgrade the death warrant to flogging. Not so bad, I guess. Death warrant, whoa, flogging. Wow, (laughs) I don't know. Um, And again, they, they give the order to the apostles not to speak in the name of Jesus. How would you respond to all that? 
I'm thinking I'd need a few weeks off and possibly visit it to a psychologist to work through my PTSD or something, I don't know. How would you respond to all that? The apostles left the Sanhedrin, this is verse 41, rejoicing, rejoicing, because they'd been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. They left not saying, whoa, they left saying, wow, we've suffered for Jesus. Anyone here ever get excited about suffering for Jesus? I mean, it's a tough call. That's a tough, that's a tough thing. What did the apostles then go and do? Well, they go and continue the mission. They keep on obeying. They, they keep on speaking Jesus and bringing the gospel into the world. And, and, and this just leaves me scratching my head and going, how could they do that? What did they have? What did they know that enabled them to do that? Moreover, how can we do this? How can we keep on being obedient to the mission and calling that we have and survive, and not just survive, how can we thrive when frequent crisis and disappointment and sufferings come our way? Because I can guarantee if you're not suffering today, there's a chance that you'll be suffering tomorrow. And if not tomorrow, it'll be next week. And if not next week, it'll probably be next month. We've got to learn how to handle this stuff and not just survive it, but thrive. Here's the answer. Here's a clue. There's a clue hidden in the description that they give about Jesus. And I think we could easily miss the significance of this. They have a revelation of Jesus that I think is missing in our... um, let's say, theology of Jesus. Or maybe we just forget this. Maybe you know this, but you just need a reminder of this. Verse 30. Verse 30 says this. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree, and God exalted him at his right hand, as leader and saviour, so that he might give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. Here's what I want you to notice. Jesus is not just alive from the dead. That's verse 30. He's been exalted. He's been exalted. And that means he's been raised up to sit at the right hand of the Father, verse 31, and he sits there at the right hand of the Father as leader and as saviour. And do you know what that means? Jesus is sitting in the place of power. He's sitting in the place of honour, the place of victory. And it's from that place that he governs, he rules. He rules from this heavenly throne. You know, this is like the power seat of the universe. It's kind of like the oval office of the universe. And sitting in this seat, do you know what? It gives him the authority and the power to govern all of creation. 
So the main point today that I want you to know, I want you to grab hold of this today. Here's what we need to know. Jesus is seated in heaven. When crisis comes again and again, you need to know that Jesus is seated on the throne in heaven. Ephesians 1 talks about a very similar thing. And in Ephesians 1, Paul is, 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 is praying that our hearts have been enlightened to know uh, the in, incomparably great power for all of us who believe. And he says that that power is the same mighty strength that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him where? In the heavenly realms. Far above all rule, all authority, all power, all dominion and every name that's invoked, not not only in the present age but also in the one to come. And it says that God placed everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything. So church, where's Jesus? Where is he? He's seated at the right hand of the Father. And so what do we need to know when crisis comes our way? We need to know that Jesus is seated in heaven. What does that mean? What does it mean to know that Jesus is seated in heaven? How does that help us, you're saying? That's a bit abstract. He's seated at the right hand. So the right hand is symbolic of strength and power over enemies. And he's seated, isn't he? So that tells us that Jesus is at rest. His authority, it's full. It's complete. The battle is won. You know that battle that you're experiencing right now? Jesus has already won that battle for you. It means that he is above all other rulers, authorities, powers and dominions. So it means that his authority over Satan, his authority over sin, his authority over brokenness is complete. And and that was true then. And that's true now. And that's true forever. It never stops being true. Just because you're having a bad day doesn't make this untrue. It just means you're having a bad day and you are not remembering that Jesus is sitting in the Oval Office of the universe. It means that everything in creation is under his rule. It means Jesus is the head over everything that is happening to you. And so in short, it means that he's got authority over all that brokenness in your life, in your family's life, in your community, in this world. And he's got authority over everything that causes that brokenness. Do you remember our three circles diagram? Got our brokenness over there in that circle on the right. You know, the world, it's a broken place, isn't it? We know that, don't we? We experience that. There's war, there's disease, there's conflict, there's suffering. But with Jesus being seated in heaven, it means that Jesus has the power to free us from this brokenness and to fix us from our brokenness. You know, you you were born a broken person. And for many of us, we continue to live in brokenness. But you know that Jesus is able to free you and fix you from that brokenness. 
I mean, that's the, that's the message of the gospel. He has a solution to your brokenness, and he's got the authority to carry out that solution too. You know, he is the ultimate authority on your illness. He's the ultimate authority over your selfishness. He's the ultimate authority over your fears, over your worries, over your concerns. He's the ultimate authority over your anger, over your grief. He's the ultimate authority over everything. His solution for your sin is forgiveness and the gift of obedience. His solution for your torment is freedom. His solution for your sickness is healing. He has a solution for every crisis and most importantly, he's got the authority and the power to make it happen. We need a heavenly perspective on our crisis. I was at uh, the memorial service for Gary on Friday. Such a sad, difficult occasion of, of woe, wasn't it? But I was chatting with his dad, Neville, and unexpectedly, his dad was full of joy in suffering, and, it, and he was all but jumping for joy, actually. <laughs> it sort of reminds me of the apostles in this passage. And he was telling people of an accident that he'd had around the age of 40, a horrific accident where he nearly died. And he tells that, that while he was being operated on, he, he was uh, out of his body and he could see what was happening to him. And then he had an encounter in heaven. He had a, a glimpse of heaven, an out-of-body experience. And he said, heaven was wonderful. He had this perspective, this glimpse, this taste. And he said to me, that is where Gary is right now. And I'm so happy. Neville had a heavenly perspective on his crisis. He's tasted the glory of heaven and he's now living out of that glory, confident, secure, knowing that King Jesus rules over everything in heaven and on earth, even the most tragic and trying and terrible of events. How could the disciples be rejoicing over their imprisonment, over their flogging, over their threats of harm if they preached Jesus again? Because they knew that Jesus was in heaven running the show. Even the Pharisee, Gamaliel, as we heard, he knew that if God was behind these men, then nothing could stop them because God has all power and all authority. Church, we need to understand the sovereign power of Jesus when crisis comes, you need to know that Jesus is seated in heaven. Now, 
here's where things get a bit weird. Good weird. But kind of mind-blowing weird. Here's where things get really wow for you. Some of you might know where I'm about to head with this. I'm going to just quickly jump back into Ephesians 2, verse 5. It says that we've been made alive with Christ even when we were dead in our, our sins, our transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved and God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. We have been raised up and seated in the heavenly realms with Christ. Circle two on our three circles diagram there. When you've turned away from your brokenness and believed and trusted in Jesus and made him king and leader, you are restored and forgiven and you're made into that brand new person over there on the left. And then you are restored back into God's perfect plan, back into that perfect loving relationship with him. You know, another way of saying that is to say that you are seated now with Christ in the heavenly realms and you now have access by merit of your relationship with Jesus into the very throne room of heaven. You have been gifted the rights and the authority to sit in that place. And I think if you allow the implications of that to sink in, you are going to see your life and this world from a whole new perspective. Not only is Jesus seated, the right hand of the Father in heaven, you are too. Do you believe that? Is that true? We've got a chair in our house. It's a big, lazy boy recliner. You can see it there on the screen. It's huge. It's comfortable. Somewhat like a throne, really. Whoever, the the person who's allowed to sit in that chair, however, in any given moment, it depends on the level of authority in the home. Okay? The thing with this chain of authority is that some of the people in this chain of authority don't even live in our house. Can you believe that? Um, the, 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 person who always, the person who always gets first option in our chair is my mother. She's top of the authority pecking order, okay? All right. Next in the authority pecking order here, next dibs on the chair, it's actually my cousin. And I won't give names, but some of you can probably guess who I'm referring to right now. Third, I comes me. I come in at number three in the authority uh, level here. Even though it's my house, even though it was my money that bought the chair, I I sometimes forget I've got the authority to sit in that chair. There's this kind of innate authority that my mum and my cousin carry that says, that chair is for me and even though I don't live in this house, I have a right to sit in it. They They just know 
you know? And, and, and they act accordingly. They just, just walk on into my home. They don't even have to ring the doorbell. They just walk on in and they head straight to that chair, no hesitation whatsoever, and they sit down in the chair. Church, I think some of us today need to understand that as a believer, you have new rights and you have new authority. You don't need to beg God from afar. You don't need to ring the doorbell. You just get to walk straight on in and sit down in that chair. You don't have to worry about uh, the power that Satan might somehow get the upper hand over you. You've been given the right, as mind-blowing and as undeserved as it is for you, to sit down with Jesus in his chair at the right hand of the Father. You know, Hebrews 4 talks about being able to approach the throne of grace with boldness to help us in our time of need, to receive help in our crisis. And the reason we can approach with boldness to receive help in our time of crisis is because Jesus has ascended into heaven and is at the right hand of the Father. You get to sit in the chair. Wow! God raised us up to share in this life-giving power. He raised us up to rule and reign with him. He raised us up to have authority over sickness sin and evil, just like the apostles. We've got to get hold of this stuff. And I tell you what, if we can't get hold of it on Pentecost Sunday, I don't know if we're ever going to get hold of it. How are the apostles able to do those crazy miracles? John 14, 12 says, Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing. This is Jesus speaking. And they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. So my question for us today as I wrap this up is this. Do you live out of an understanding that this is true? Or are you forgetting what you have access to? You know, whether you're praying for someone's healing or whether you're just parenting kids, do you do that from a knowledge of the power and the victory that is found in Jesus in heaven? Or are you seeing yourself as somehow separated and, and somehow trying to get access to, to all that Jesus has from a distance? Is Jesus far away from you? Or is he close by? Is the power of heaven a distant wish, or is it a daily reality for you? Church, this needs to be our daily reality. It's not just for the spiritual high flyers. We need this stuff every day. It should affect our lives every day because that's how we can joyfully and obediently see our way through this crisis and to the next. You know, some of us here today need to probably repent of trying to bungee cord our, our way out of our own brokenness. You're just, you're like a, a, a mouse on a treadmill. You know, you're trying to pedal your way out of your own brokenness. You're trying to work so hard and try so hard to be free of it. Stop trying to earn, strive or bargain your way to freedom. 
Just go and sit down in the chair with Jesus. I think some of us here today are stuck in a, in a prison. You're stuck. And you're not even trying to bungee cord your way out of it. You just feel so defeated, so helpless. You know, when the disciples were put in prison, Jesus sent an angel from heaven to free them. I love this quote from a, a commentator, W.H. Uh, Willem, and he says, there's something about the gospel that renders prisons ineffective. If that's you, I encourage you, go home and meditate on Luke, Luke chapter 4. Luke 4, 18 to 19. Because Jesus wants to free you from that prison. But I think there are others of us here today that, that you need a fresh call and a fresh commission to propel you onwards again in your mission. You, you kind of need a bit of a, a bit of an oomph to get going again. You need that fresh call, that fresh commissioning. When the disciples were put in prison and Jesus sent that angel, what did the angel do? He gave them a fresh call and fresh commission. He said, go on, ouches go, get out there, preach the gospel. And so today, um, you might need a fresh reminder of the plans and the purposes that God has for you. Maybe you even need that calling and commissioning spoken into your life for the first time. And so what we're going to do is we're going to respond in worship right now. And I've got a, a video song. We're just going to allow it to minister to us. And I just encourage you, as the song plays, would you invite the Holy Spirit to bring revelation of, of this stuff to you? If you need to repent of trying to strive and bungee cord your way out of brokenness, would you take some time to do that? If you are stuck in a prison, would you allow Jesus to come and minister to you and free you from that prison? And if you need a fresh call and commission, ask for one. Ask for one.